0: Next on the Public Radio Hour, have you been following what's happening during the current legislative session in Montgomery? Capital Journal's Don Daly gets us up to date on the Anti-Road Rage Act, a dead ethics bill, a proposed ban on banning single-use plastic, and the general fund budget, which includes a 2% raise for state employees.
1: Some people have been making light of the fact that that cost of living increase might almost absorb the gas tax uh, increase.
0: We'll also talk with David Whiteside of Tennessee Riverkeeper about microplastics and other problems plaguing our region's waterways.
2: And we're not asking people to switch off the single-use plastics entirely overnight. It's it's almost impossible to go a single day in this country without using some type of single-use plastics. I've tried. It's very difficult. And we'll learn about a
0: newly released study on gynecological cancers and how women can better protect their health. The Public Radio Hour is next, here on 89.3 Huntsville. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly public affairs mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. Coming up on tonight's show Jenny Kennedy talks with Susan Layton And Regina Parker about women's health And a new study on gynecological cancers WLRH Community Newsroom producer Kathy Jones talks with Tennessee Riverkeeper Executive Director David Weinstein about microplastics And other pollutants Causing problems in our region's waterways And what we can do about it Speaking of which a bill is pending down in Montgomery at the Alabama State House that would prohibit local governments from banning or restricting the use of single-use plastic items, like plastic grocery bags, which are one of the largest contributors to litter and pollution. That's right, a ban on banning plastic. It's one of a number of bills state lawmakers are debating right now. So thank goodness for Don Daly, host of Capital Journal, which airs on Alabama Public Television Monday through Thursday nights at 1030 and Friday nights at 8. Also available by podcast at aptv.org. I spoke with Don this afternoon to get the latest. So, Don, it looks like the general fund has now passed the Alabama House. Among other things, it includes money for 500 new correction officers, Tell us a little bit about the general fund budget.
1: It's a $2.1 billion uh, spending plan, and it pretty closely mirrors the general fund budget that had been proposed by Governor Kay Ivey. It does set up increases for most state agencies that fall under the general fund. And just for clarification, those are non-education-related agencies. A lot of attention was paid, of course, to the additional money in the general fund budget for the Department of Corrections. Governor Ivey had proposed $41 million additional dollars for state prisons. About $31 million of that would go toward hiring new correctional officers, 500 new correctional officers. Now, that's seen as a huge first step, but it's also an incremental step because prison officials have said, because of the urgent need of overcrowding and understaffing, they probably need 1,800 new correctional officers. Obviously, the state can't afford to hire 1,800 new officers in one fell swamp, but they've taken the first step toward that in hiring 500 under this general fund budget that the House approved now, and it moves to the Senate
0: next. There's also a cost of living raise for state employees of 2% that just about covers the cost of the proposed gas tax increase.
1: Yes, uh, cost of living increase for state employees, that was a priority that uh, Governor Ivy had outlined in her State of the State uh, address, and it has uh, uh, passed unanimously, both out of committee uh, and the House. By the way, that that cost of living increase, it was a separate bill that had to pass in addition to the general fund budget, and it was named in honor of uh, the late Representative Dimitri Polizos of Montgomery, who was originally carrying that bill for the governor of course, uh, he passed away before it went to committee, and it was named in his honor. But yes, um, some people have been making light of the fact that that cost of living increase might almost absorb uh, the uh, the gas tax uh, increase.
0: Anything else of interest in the general fund? I'm sure there's many things, but uh, anything our listeners might be interested in?
1: Well, uh, among other things, there's more money to hire more state troopers. A lot of people are aware of the the, uh, the serious need for more state troopers, on state roads. Uh, This uh, legislation seeks to hire uh, a new class of state troopers. I think it's 40, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, the the state trooper classes are being incrementally uh, increased, uh, as are the correctional officer uh, classes, because uh, state troopers have long needed extra troopers on the road, and a lot of concerns have been raised over the years about, uh, especially during overnight hours, about how few troopers are on the road and how underserved some areas of the state are.
0: A controversial ethics bill, Senate Bill 230, looks like it will be stranded in the Senate Judiciary Committee and effectively dead for this session. Uh, And just to review, this was highly controversial as it would have allowed new leeway for lobbyists to give gifts to lawmakers. And it also had some decent support in the Senate. So, Don, tell us a little bit more about this measure uh, that may be dead for the session. Uh, what was in it? What was the motivation? And what ultimately brought its end?
1: Yeah, this is uh, one that's been grabbing a lot of headlines the last uh, week or two since it was introduced. Senator Greg Albrighton of Range was sponsoring the legislation uh, that would, as you mentioned, uh, allow lobbyists uh, to give Gifts to lawmakers as long as those gifts are reported. It also would lessen the penalties for certain ethics related violations, and it would shift the authority to investigate some such matters largely from the State Ethics Commission and the Attorney General's office to local district attorneys. Now, Senator Albritton has said that his motivation was a lot of confusion over the state ethics law. and. Uh, As you may be aware, there was uh, a study commission which worked all of last summer uh, involving a lot of uh, state uh, stakeholders on this issue. And one of the issues they brought up was the confusion that lawmakers are sometimes uh, scared to do this or that because they're not sure if it'll take their toe just uh, an inch over the line where the ethics laws are drawn. So he says he wanted to... uh, bring about more clarification and, and shine more light on issues. Uh, he says, for instance, when proposing uh, that uh, lobbyists be allowed uh, to give gifts to lawmakers, lobbyists would be responsible for, uh, for reporting those gifts. And he says that just totally opens it up uh, for sheer transparency. But, of course, the pushback uh, has been pretty significant uh, on this bill. There are those who say it wouldn't necessarily clarify the ethics laws, that it would actually gut the ethics law was one term that's been used, or weaken the ethics law is another term that's been thrown about uh, during this process. In committee this week, uh, it was set for uh, a committee action this week, the Senate Judiciary Committee, but the chair of that committee, Senator Cam Ward of Alabaster, carried it over, saying he had problems with the legislation and that he didn't see himself bringing it back up for consideration in that particular committee. So that's prompted uh, the speculation that it may or may not be dead for the session.
0: And this kind of speaks to the power of being in charge of your committee, uh, uh, Senator Ward having the, the the power and the decision-making authority to decide whether this bill comes up.
1: Yes. Uh, he uh, was pretty outspoken uh, on the issue uh, this week. Uh, Senator Allbritton has said during the meeting this week that he would yield uh, to the wishes of the chair. He said that he sensed uh, that there was a mood not to rush this issue so much. So he said, I won't push for a vote on my legislation this week. I will yield to the will of the chair. And the will of the chair, Senator uh, Ward, ended up being uh, carrying it over. And then, of course, he said later that uh, he didn't intend to bring it back up
0: again. And speaking of things, uh, being uh, bills being decided whether they come up or not, a bill being kept from debate on the House floor is the hands-free bill, which would extend the current law that currently bans texting and driving uh, to also make it illegal to actually just hold a cell phone while driving. So, Don, what can you tell us about the hands-free bill? Uh, It's being kept from debate on the House floor. What's happening here?
1: Yeah, this is an interesting one, too. You know, there were two separate bills dealing uh, with this issue. Uh, The House bill that you referenced, sponsored by Representative uh, Alan Farley of Lacala, there was also a Senate bill to this effect, sponsored by Senator Jim McClendon of Springville, Uh, it died in committee. Uh, Representative uh, Farley got his bill out of committee and it's been scheduled for debate on uh, the House floor a couple of times, but never made it before uh, adjournment. And it has not been scheduled uh, in about a week. And there's also talk that there's a third bill out there dealing with this issue. Senator McClendon, who I spoke with prior to the session, had said at that time that he didn't expect his Distracted driving bill to be the only one up for consideration in this session. That he expected a couple of others that proved to be the case. And he said he didn't care if his was the one that got passed or not, he just hoped that one got passed. Apparently, there's uh, been some pushback on this issue. Some feel that it's too restrictive, that it's too much of an overreach, saying that uh, if, a, if a law enforcement officer spotted uh, a driver with a cell phone in their hand or some other device in their hand, that they weren't doing anything else wrong that could pull them over just for that reason. And These concerns have been raised that maybe that's just a step too far. Uh, it hasn't been declared dead for the session yet. Obviously, uh, Representative Farley's bill did make it out of committee and could still be put on a future House calendar. Uh, but after initially being placed on a calendar about two weeks ago, we haven't seen it on another calendar since.
0: Keeping it on the roadways for just a moment, the uh, Anti-Road Rage Act also making some progress.
1: Yes, it passed uh, the House uh, this week. Uh, This is Representative Philip Pettis' bill. He's from Killen. He's a retired state trooper, and he's floated this bill for several years. And what it would mandate is that uh, people who are so-called left-lane drivers on interstates, in other words, they get over in that far left lane and they stay there. They don't get out. Uh, could be ticketed if they don't, within about a mile and a half, pass a vehicle and then get back over in one of the uh, right-hand lanes. Uh, He has long been a proponent of uh, the philosophy behind the left lane on interstates being the passing lane and not a cruising lane, as some people tend to make it. And so he wants to uh, enact penalties for those who get in the far left lane and stay there uh, way too long. Uh, Again, he's floated this a couple of times. It got out of the House this week, and it now goes to the Senate.
0: Another bill that's been in the news uh, recently is a a measure that would prohibit local governments from banning the use of plastic bags and other single-use plastic items. It would also prohibit local governments from charging a fee for their use. And I think some people are maybe confused or maybe bewildered is a better word uh, on why the state government would block local governments in this matter. Is the age-old issue of home rule once again coming into play here?
1: It's been brought up several times during this debate uh, over the last week or so over this issue. But uh, the Senate sponsor of this legislation, who is Senator Steve Livingston of Scottsboro, who got his bill out of committee this week, says it's about uniformity. When we discuss the banning of plastic bags and the taxing of plastic bags, those types of ordinances were originally created Uh, to help uh, guard against uh, pollution. Plastic bags are considered a major contributor to our pollution problem, our litter problem, and that was the uh, original intent of some of these local ordinances to either ban them or tax them, in other words, to discourage the use of them. But Senator Livingston, in bringing his particular bill, says it's about uniformity. It's about uh, businesses being able to operate on a level playing field in the state, and some cities Uh, not being able to enact these uh, types of laws and other cities being able to. He just wants to make everything uniform. It's sort of akin to the debate a couple of years ago uh, up in uh, Jefferson County Concerning raising the local uh, minimum wage, the sponsors of that particular legislation also said it was about uniformity. They didn't want some cities or counties having the ability to raise or lower their minimum wage and others not. So this uniformity issue is one that has cropped up in this plastic bag debate.
0: Do you know anything about the origins of this bill, Don? I understand that a very similar measure uh, has been popping up in some other neighboring states. Is this it's a bill hate- that Mr. Livingston wrote, or is this a bill that you know, perhaps comes from the outside?
1: I think – I'm not sure if if he was influenced by uh, other bills in neighboring states, but you're right. It is an issue that's been raised elsewhere, and it seems to be mostly about uniformity when conducting business in the state. In other words, those businesses that deal in plastic bags, either by making them or using them to send their customers home with their goods – They want uniformity on this issue. They don't want to have to deal with one ordinance here and a different ordinance there.
0: And listeners, stay tuned. Coming up in the next segment of the Public Radio Hour, we'll learn more about microplastics uh, in our waterways from uh, David Whiteside with Tennessee Riverkeeper. So, Don, back to Montgomery here. Uh, Can you give us an update on Common Core after being rushed through the Senate Uh, now an effort to repeal the Common Core curriculum standards has stalled in the House, as House Speaker Mac McCutcheon says they intend to be deliberate about this. An AL.com article also mentioned some interesting points to remember in this debate, that Alabama actually already dropped out of Common Core back in 2013, and since then has revised the curriculum three times, and this is one I didn't know, that the math standards currently used and methodologies were written entirely by Alabamians. So, Don, what's happening with Common Core in the House, and what things are House members looking at more closely?
1: Yes, interesting points you bring up. We had the state school superintendent, Dr. Eric Mackey, on our show about two weeks ago, and he pointed up some of those very things. A, that Alabama dropped out of the Common Core Consortium several years ago and has developed its own college and career-ready standards, which we're operating under now. Uh, He points out that uh, even though we develop those standards, there is some overlap with standards from other states that are still under the Common Core Consortium. He doesn't like the use, Dr. Mackey doesn't like the use of the term Common Core. It doesn't seem like it quite working. fits. Yeah, he says we're not part of that consortium anymore, so he makes that pretty specific argument when talking uh, about this. But in terms of its stalling in the House uh, Mac McCutcheon, the Speaker, has said that the House would be more deliberative about this. Representative Terry Collins of Decatur, who chairs the Education Policy Committee in the House, which would vet this legislation, has also said, as a matter of fact, she said so on our show last week, that she was also going to have her committee be more deliberative about this, that they were going to look at this very closely. And even senators who uh, approved this bill and sent it to the House said in doing so that they expected the process in the House, Uh, To be a lot more deliberative because there's a lot at stake here. There are a lot of uh, unintended consequences of dropping these standards and creating new ones. Uh, there are so many spin-off effects of doing so, and they want to make sure that if they do it, they do it correctly and with as little disruption to the education process as possible.
0: House Speaker Mike McCutcheon and Representative Terry Collins came up last week, as we talked, uh, Don, uh, in reference to the medical marijuana bill that's pending and also uh, a bill regarding abortion. Has there been any progress on those bills?
1: Uh, neither bill has been in committee yet, but... Um, We wait to see on the abortion bill. Of course, that's one of the most closely watched bills uh, in Montgomery right now, the one that would mandate an outright ban on abortion in the state. Uh, Representative Collins has said, of course, that she hopes that If it ultimately passes, it will be a legal challenge that will end up all the way in the U.S. Supreme Court and force a review of the Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion back in the 70s. Medical marijuana is also very closely watched. Again, uh, it's uh, for the medical use of marijuana to help the terminally ill, those who suffer from chronic pain and that sort of thing. Uh, Both have yet to be scheduled for committee, but uh, that could happen as early as next week.
0: And just stepping out of the legislature for one moment for our last uh, story here, it appears that Nancy Worley will remain unopposed as chairwoman of the Alabama Democratic Party after former state Senator Myron Penn dropped out of the running for that position. And the Democratic Party, uh, as many have noticed, seems to be in quite a bit of turmoil. What does this latest development
3: mean?
1: Yes, uh, turmoil has been the operative word uh, lately. Uh, the Democratic National Committee, of course, which uh, ordered uh, new elections after questions were raised about the last election in which uh, Nancy Worley was reseated uh, as chairman uh, it's going to be interesting to see their response uh, to this, uh, whether or not uh, they're going to encourage other people to to run against uh, Ms Worley. Or what might be the next step, because they obviously saw the need for a new election uh, at the state party. Uh, depending on who you ask about the ultimate effects of this, uh, it's interesting. Uh, Nancy Worley and Joe Reed, who heads the minority caucus of the state Democratic Party, have, have both contended that the state party is fine and doesn't need any leadership changes. There are others, like, for instance, U.S. Senator Doug Jones, who have said that the state uh, Democratic Party is in dire need, as they put it, of a new direction and new leadership. So uh, it's, it continues to be a very split party.
0: We're talking with Don Daly, host of Capitol Journal uh, on Alabama Public Television. And Don, you're still in your legislative specials right now. So Capitol Journal on Monday through Thursday nights at 1030, also Friday nights at eight. And tonight on Thursday night show, who are your guests?
1: We have uh, Representative Chris Pringle of Mobile on the show tonight, and he will be talking about, among other things, his recently announcing that he'll be running for Alabama's first district congressional seat, the seat that Bradley Byrne is Ah. giving up to run for the U.S. Senate. So that'll be interesting. And uh, Representative Pringle will also talk about a bill he has introduced this year that's getting some attention. It would uh, improve upon, as he puts it, the state's open records law.
0: Don, thanks for sharing with us.
1: Brad, it was a pleasure being with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Take care. thanks again to Don Daly, host of Capital Journal, which airs on Alabama Public Television Monday through Thursday at 10:30 p.m. and Friday nights at 8. Also available by podcast at aptv.org. And don't forget you can also find this episode of the Public Radio Hour in podcast form on our website at wlrh.org. During our discussion, you may have heard us talk about a bill that would prohibit local governments from enacting bans or placing fees on plastic grocery bags and other single-use plastic items. More and more research is showing that plastic is showing up in places we're not expecting it to, including our food and water supplies, and that's a big problem. Just think about all the plastic you use and throw away or attempt to recycle. Bags, cups, bottles, food containers, utensils, we're making piles and piles of garbage that's going to be with us for a long time. That's been on the mind of community newsroom producer Kathy Jones, who is interested in the subject, especially the role microplastics are playing in our environment. She sat down with David Whiteside, executive director of Tennessee Riverkeeper, to learn more. Kathy and David started their discussion with Andreas Vath, in 2007, German scientist Andreas Fath did a unique pollution study of the Tennessee River where he swam the entire length of it, that's right, all 652 miles, and documented the pollutants he encountered during that swim. And that's where we join the conversation.
2: His microplastic survey results determined that the Tennessee River is polluted by as much as 16,000 to 18,000 parts per cubic liter of microplastic pollution uh, we know that the Tennessee River is also polluted with PFAS pollution and sewage and coal ash uh, and a grim litany of other types of pollutants. Uh, so this was horrible news to hear about the levels of microplastics and uh, the alarming levels of microplastics combined with all the other pollution sources uh, are, are are revealing that the Tennessee River might be one of the most polluted rivers in the United States, and that's unacceptable. Uh, as Southerners, we know we cherish that river. We cherish the right to go fish and to feed that fish to our families, but unfortunately, that right has been stolen from us by a handful of polluters who uh, refuse to comply with the law and clean up their act.
3: So where is where are these microplastics coming from? Do you have a, a major contributor of plastic pollution in in the river?
2: The science on microplastic pollution uh, is still out there where this is one of the newest pollution issues uh, in the environmental field. Uh, We're learning more and more about this pollution issue every week. And uh, we do know that a lot of the plastics are occurring from breaking down of bigger pieces of plastics. Uh, We also suspect uh, that there are direct sources of the microplastics. Um, in the ocean, uh, there have been things called nurdles, which are essentially reproduction plastics. They're little pieces of plastic that uh, are melted down to create a lot of other plastic products. And um, we know that, that the container, entire shipping containers full of nurdles have spilled into the ocean and um, have introduced large amounts of plastic pollution into our oceans. That way, Um, Shipping containers uh, uh, falling off of ships during storms has introduced a lot of plastics into our ocean. We know that. There are essentially uh, in dealing with water pollution, there are two sources of water pollution in general, point source pollution and non-point source pollution. The point source pollution is a pollution source that comes from a pipe or a ditch or something like that. Uh, and non-point source pollution is is essentially death by a thousand cuts. It's uh, like runoff from the roads and things like that. So a lot of this plastic pollution is non-point source, which means it's running off of the roads from litter and things like that. But we do know that there are point source pollutions uh, along the way, uh, even though they might be unconventional and not coming from a pipe. Uh, that there there, there are point sources of this plastic, including manufacturers of plastics as well, but uh, we're still, uh, the, the, the difficulty in this problem is that it's coming from everywhere and there's not a single point source.
3: During the recent flooding of, of the Tennessee River last month, there was a lot of areas down along the Tennessee River near Ditto Landing and some of the stream beds where you could see a lot of trash, and I guess is that, typically what you're seeing in the river?
2: Uh, Yes, we are seeing a lot of litter in in our waterways. Uh, When Riverkeeper does cleanups, uh, plastic pollution, especially single-use plastics uh, like the shopping bags and soda bottles uh, and single-use forks and knives and spoons and things like that, are some of the most commonly occurring pieces of litter that we're finding. Additionally, styrofoam, which is another form of plastic, is also very commonly occurring. And the Tennessee Department of Transportation came up with a study that determined, according to their results, that in Tennessee, which I think is uh, roughly applicable to Alabama as well, about 30% of the litter in the state of Tennessee is thrown out intentionally from from vehicles, from your car or your truck, uh, which means someone actually took that piece of trash and willingly threw it out their window and, and littered on purpose. Um, 70% of the litter uh, that are getting out on Tennessee's roadways, according to Dot, is unintentionally littered, which uh, most of that is coming from people's truck beds when they put a piece of trash in the back of their truck bed and forget it's there and drive off, it will eventually blow out into the roads. And when it rains, as you said, it will wash into the nearest creek, which flows into the nearest river. And most rivers empty into the ocean. So um, the plastic eventually, especially if it's closer to coastal waterways, um, it's going to be emptying into our oceans from the fresh water as well.
3: So these microplastics they are getting into the food that people eat. What are the health risks to humans and wildlife?
2: Sure. Well, there's there's various types of microplastics once the uh, various types of plastic break down. Um, and, and we do know that those microplastics are entering the food chain. Uh, the invertebrates will eat uh, small pieces of plastics thinking it's food. Uh, and then the uh, larger uh, critters will eat them, and then the small minnows will, will eat them, and then the bigger fish eat the minnows. And what, what you see is that the, pl- the microplastics are biomagnifying up the food chain, which means that they are increasing their toxicity and their concentration as, uh, as they work their way up the food chain. Uh, we also know that um, a lot of birds are having problems with with the plastics, um, either they're eating the fish that are contaminated with plastics, or they're eating the plastics entirely, uh, thinking it's food, and and just and we we've documented a lot of the the birds dying have been documented on on the coast, and a lot of seabirds uh, are eating plastics and dying, and there's there's been significant photographic evidence of this, and uh, you've probably seen it on the internet of bodies of birds decaying and until eventually the last thing that's left are their skeletal structure and where their stomach used to be, and the stomach has deteriorated, and all you can see is is plastics, um, and, and you can tell that their stomach was full of plastics, and that's what caused the death of those seabirds.
3: The microplastics, are they causing any illnesses in
2: humans? Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I, I didn't get to that, but yes, of course, um, we do know that these plastic... Particles, um, not only are they toxic to life, not just humans, but fish and, and birds um, they're, uh, because they're petroleum-based. Um, these plastic particles um, are, are generally toxic to life in the first place. But humans and fish and birds also are, uh, are not meant to eat these and we're incapable of digesting them. Uh, so any sort of plastics that humans or birds our fish digest, uh, they're gonna have digestive issues related to that, and we also know, and the science is still evolving on this, but the science and scientific, scientific community has determined that um, other particles of pollution that are present in waterways are attaching to these microplastics and creating kind of a form of super pollution or mutant pollution um, where you've got the, the toxicity of the plastic itself but it's acting like a magnet, uh, attracting other toxic particles. And um, so when we ingest microplastics, there's a very good chance that there are other pollution um, chemicals Ad- that are very scary that are attached to those microplastics. Adhere- adhering to the surfaces. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
3: So what actions do you uh, recommend that um, should be taken to make a significant difference in the microplastics po- um, pollution in the rivers and streams here in the Tennessee Valley?
2: Uh, well, this is one of the hardest pollution problems I've ever encountered to solve because uh, we're all guilty. Anyone that's ever used a single-use piece of plastic uh, is guilty as part of this problem. Or even um, we keep talking about single-use plastics, but I, I I have to bring up zero-use plastics, which is certainly a thing. And people ask, what are zero-use plastics? How can that exist? Well, oftentimes if you go to a restaurant and get a uh, takeout food or especially caterers are very guilty of this. Um, They will give you a set of utensils that's wrapped in plastic and you get the knife, the fork and the spoon. And most people are just going to use just the fork or just the spoon. And you end up throwing away two out of three of those plastic utensils because you only needed one of them. So two out of those three utensils are never going to be used. There's no uh, use for that plastic knife or other utensil, and when it's thrown out, it's going to be present for 300 to 400 years. So um, yeah, there's other things too. If you if you oftentimes, I I hate straws. I never want a straw, and you know about once a month, my uh, a waiter or a waitress will will give me a straw, even though I told her I didn't want one. And um, so that's a zero use item too. Uh, I'll go out of my way to say I don't want a single use item. And they'll already, if it's already put in my drink, then they can't reuse it. And so, you know, that's another example of zero-use items. So I still recycle most of the plastic that I use. But what we found out, unfortunately, is that only about one out of ten pieces of recyclable items that we put in our bin, whether we clean them or not, whether we rinse them off or not, only about one out of ten is uh, being – is actually getting recycled. So – um, recycling is not really the best solution now that, now that we know that. Uh, certainly China not accepting our recyclable materials has complicated the bigger picture of recycling items. Um, so that being said, we've all got to change the way we're thinking. We have to demand that our leaders um, come up with common sense solutions to phasing out single-use plastics. We need to demand that local businesses and, 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 and major businesses, franchises and chains as well, um, switch to alternatives of single-use plastics. There's great alternatives out there that are based on plants or, uh, or bamboo or corn-based um, utensils. Uh, so there's, there's great alternatives out there. There's paper-based straws, um, and all of these solutions um, are going to have to be enacted because our world is, at, is about to be at plastic capacity. Certainly our ocean has way too much plastic in it, and the only solution to that is to stop using single-use plastic eventually.
3: Do you um, feel that reducing the number of plastic grocery sacks would make a difference to the quantity of plastic pollution that that we're seeing?
2: Yes. um, One of the biggest sources of plastic pollution and single-use plastics we're finding in the creeks and the waterways are plastic bags. um, they actually do break down a little faster than the plastic bottles or the utensils, um, but that they're so common that we know that that's a significant source of microplastic pollution in our waterways. Um, we believe that uh, it's up to local government to come up with those their best solutions. Unfortunately, there seems to be um, a uh, plethora of bills that are preemptively trying to ban uh, banning single-use plastics—it's very confusing—and um, the fact that um, you know that these bills are coming out of nowhere with a similar language that are preemptively trying to ban a source of pollution that most Americans are sick and tired of seeing in our streets and our waterways—that uh, know that the public didn't demand this bill um, It's certainly—it's an obvious subsidy to the plastic industry. Um, then, then that is an alarming um notion in and of itself and and the people of alabama have a right to ask some very tough questions to the people that sponsored this bill uh and 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 to ask them you know who wrote the bill and and who's who's um writing checks to their campaign to get this bill passed there are alternatives to to plastic shopping bags too Um, a lot of people are quick to say you know, Well, let's stop using the plastic shopping bags and switch over to paper, and let's cut down all the trees, and that's an oversimplification of the argument. Um, there used to be a debate in the grocery store as to what was better for the environment, paper or plastic. Now that we know what we know about microplastics, especially in our backyard in the Tennessee River Valley, with the alarming levels of microplastics, we can definitively say that paper is the best choice. Uh, the paper will eventually biodegrade and it's made from um, pine trees that are meant to be grown for pulp paper usage. Um, that being said, the economic writing is on the wall that the, our, our grocery sacks made from paper will not be made from trees in the near future. They will be, uh, most of our pulp paper It's going to be phased from pine trees to to hemp plants. Um, And now that Congress has made that legal, uh, the economic writing is on the wall with the paper industry. The paper industry will switch from from trees to hemp-based paper um, because efficiency is rewarded in the free market. And all you have to do is look at the life cycle of each plant and, um, and how quickly the hemp plant grows to maturity to be able to pulp it to make it into paper versus how slowly the pine tree grows to be able to pulp it and, and to make it into paper at maturity. Um, the, the, the difference is exponential, and um, and they're, it's going to increase profits while reducing their environmental footprint of the paper industry. And um, so that hemp-based grocery bags are the wave of the future, and you can even make plastic-type grocery bags out of hemp as well. So in the near future, um, both, of the, both of the grocery bags that you have an option of getting at your local grocery store are going to be either hemp-based paper or hemp-based plastic, and and both of those biodegrade much quicker in the environment, and that's an environmental victory for us all.
3: Um, I did want to, I was going to ask if you could talk a little bit about the trash cleanup projects sure. you had. Sure. You had one over in Decatur and one down here on, in uh, South Huntsville. Sure. What did you do and What was the result?
2: Tennessee Riverkeeper has started a new anti-microplastics campaign this year as part of uh, our solution to address this microplastic pollution. That approach is three-pronged in in nature, and we have three different methods of trying to remediate the microplastic pollution. The first one is we organize cleanups. We've had five cleanups this year, uh, and Tennessee Riverkeeper has removed— over 9,900 pounds of aquatic litter from the Tennessee River and its tributaries uh, in 2019. A lot of that is plastic pollution, and, and our intent is to remove all the litter that we can find out on these cleanups from from the river, but focusing on the plastic pollution uh, first and foremost, and the styrofoam too. Uh, and then second, the second approach is to Educate the public about microplastics through these cleanups, um, whether they come out and help us clean up and see firsthand how many shopping bags are in in the creek or on the riverbank or um, or by talking to people like you and the press uh, that amplifies our voice. And um, by doing an interview like this, um, I can talk to you about microplastics for 30 minutes or so. And, and this interview will be amplified across the Tennessee Valley and we'll be able to reach thousands of people. Um, so that's a great tactic as well. And I know you know, that none of the listeners to WLRH are, are doing any of this littering, whether it's intentional or unintentional. I know that your listeners uh, make sure that they don't have any trash in their truck bed or they're not throwing it out the window. So we're kind of preaching to the choir here. So the you know the 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 message for the listeners of public radio are to let them know about microplastic pollution, let them know it's in their river, and and to let them know that that their good intentions of recycling may not be um, being filled to fruition with the recycling levels. We need to do better at, at reusing reusable containers, and um and and phasing out single use plastics from our life in, entirely, uh, and that. That is a very hard thing to do with our society, and we're not asking people to switch off the single-use plastics entirely overnight. It's, it's almost impossible to go a single day in this country without using some type of single-use plastics. I've tried. It's very difficult.
0: That was David Whiteside, executive director of Tennessee Riverkeeper talking with WLRH Community Newsroom producer Kathy Jones about microplastics in the Tennessee River. You can also find this discussion in tonight's Public Radio Hour podcast on our website at WLRH.org. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. In this final segment, we'll segue from river health to women's health. Last month, the Alabama Study Commission for Gynecological Cancers released a new report. Regina Parker, Executive Director of Lilies of the Valley, a local gynecological cancer support group, and Susan Layton, National Program Director of Survivors Teaching Students with the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, spoke with Jenny Kennedy about the study and what steps women can take to be better advocates for their own health.
4: The Lilies of the Valley is a gynecologic cancer support and awareness group for women in Huntsville and North Alabama, the whole Tennessee Valley region. We started uh, 15 years ago, 14 years ago, as an ovarian cancer group and have recently expanded to cover women with all the GYN cancers, so they're all welcome to come and join our group, uh, get the support they need and and, uh, learn more and get involved.
5: And it's something that we might not want to talk about, but we need to talk about.
4: Yes, yes. It's a um, hard-to-diagnose disease It is usually diagnosed at late stage, so our members are, um, they're usually pretty sick, and they need a lot of support. They need the services that we offer.
5: And Susan Layton, who oh, you got to be Patrick Dempsey.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <off> <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
5: Tell me how that happened.
6: Uh, I was nominated. In fact, Regina nominated me for an award with Cure Magazine called mm-hmm. Ovarian Cancer Heroes and uh, was fortunate enough to win, and they took us to the Society for Gynecologic Oncologists network our meeting in New Orleans and uh, Patrick Dempsey was the keynote speaker his mother had passed away of ovarian cancer I did not know that yes she did and so it was it was a way to get the message out and it really did a lot for coverage of ovarian cancer
5: well let's let's talk about it a lot of people don't i mean it's called the silent killer for good reason
6: We're trying to get away from the name silent killer only because there are symptoms, and there are symptoms even in early stages, although most women will not recognize that they have symptoms because they're very vague, and they often are uh, reminiscent of other benign conditions, Mm -hmm. and doctors tend to think of them in that light
5: oh you're just bloated oh you just need to switch your diet you need to exercise more right
6: right and so women tend to be diagnosed in later stages when the survival rates are far Mm -hmm. poor
5: so what are those symptoms we should not ignore
4: the most common symptoms are are bloating abdominal pain uh, sometimes back pain what we tell women is anything that is unusual for you and is persistent, if this has been going on for more than a couple of weeks and it's not normal for your body, get it checked out. We know our bodies. We know when something is wrong, and we have to be our own advocates and make sure that we
5: get thoroughly checked out. Well, I appreciate what you did as an advocate to get this study commission. The Alabama Study for Gynecologic Cancers released its report last March. Why don't you tell us how that started? How did that get un- underway?
6: The way it started was uh, I happened to be an advocate on the national level, and I saw a study commission that was appointed in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts has great outcomes for women with ovarian cancer. First of all, they're a smaller population than our state, and they came up with a report with several recommendations, and I started looking at what the... um, Survival rates for all the gynecologic cancers were here in Alabama, and they're not good. Mm -hmm. In particular, Alabama is ranked third overall in deaths for ovarian cancer and first overall for cervical cancer.
5: And why is that?
6: There are a number of reasons, and that's what we wanted Mm -hmm. to find out through the commission. So we we got together several clinicians, medical oncologists, gyn oncologists, researchers, and advocates to to really research what the problem is. Is it that people aren't being referred to the proper kind of physician? And we found out that's definitely true. They're not getting to see gynecologic oncologists as quickly as they should. Um, are women's symptoms not being recognized? Are women aware of the symptoms? All of those things and then we also found that women have problem with access to health care in Alabama, especially in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. I mean we have more gynecologic oncologists than the national average right really? here now Al- yes, right here in Alabama because
5: there's only one in Huntsville that I know of one there's, practice right
6: but there are several in, at UAB.
5: UAB is great, yeah.
6: There are several at um, the University of South Alabama. Mm-hmm. There's, I think there are four down there now. So down the center of the state, there's a great number of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: But for a woman who lives 100 miles away from there, that might as well be on the other side of the world.
5: And if she's dismissing her symptoms.
6: Exactly it. Or she may be seeing a family practice doctor Mm -hmm. who in all of his years in practice may only see one or two women with ovarian cancer. So he may not be thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And so he may not refer her.
4: The cervical cancer uh, statistics for Alabama were really shocking to me that we were first in the nation Mm -hmm. in mortality. Because cervical cancer is one of the few GYN cancers that there's a, a reliable screening test mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. The, pap, the pap smear. And there's also prevention with the HPV vaccine. But as Susan said, we found that it's we think from what we can glean that it's a problem with access. Uh, it's in the rural, poor areas. Um, maybe women aren't being screened, or maybe they're not following up on a bad screening. Uh, our HPV vaccine vaccination rate in this state is not where it should be. Uh, so those are things we hope to address.
5: And, again, that there is good news. I'm reading from this study that 99% of cervical cancers and 90% of vulvar and vaginal cancers could be prevented through the HPV vaccination, and it's not just for girls. Right,
6: th- girls and boys. Girls needed. and boys. And they've also just extended the age, a- recommended age for it so that even adults can receive the okay. vaccination now. So that's a preventable cancer. Why would you not want to take the, ch- the, the steps to prevent it?
5: Or, again, maybe it's not people want to take the steps. Don't have access. There is just obstacles to right. it. So what other good news is came from this report? Uh,
6: I think the biggest takeaway from it was the fact that we have a number of people working on this in Alabama. The clinicians that were sitting at the table with, with the advocates to discuss it came up with some logical ways to raise awareness among the medical community. Um, the advocates came up with ways that we feel we can increase awareness among the general population. So going forward, I can see a lot of things that we can do.
4: Anyone who would like to get involved uh, with this could, can contact me through the Lilly's website or shoot me an email. Uh, we, we'll take all the help we can get in, in going forward with our recommendations.
6: we love nothing better than to come out to groups of women and talk about it sit down one-on-one with women, and just have a discussion about it. And we're always available to give awareness talks anywhere in the community.
5: And I was looking at your website, and I see that you have an event coming up at Hudson Alpha. Mm
3: -hmm.
6: Yeah. Yes, we're going out for a uh, tour of Hudson Alpha because they're doing research on ovarian and breast cancer, which are both genetically linked in Mm -hmm. some instances. And so they've invited us out for a tour and a... uh, Talk with one of the researchers to help our ladies understand exactly what kind of disease they're facing.
4: We had a, a researcher from Hudson Alpha on our
5: study commission. Mm-hmm. So. Do, do you have any sort of recommendations for perhaps preventing ovarian cancer for maybe younger women who haven't really thought about this before? There's
6: really not a prevention for ovarian cancer, but there are some steps you can take to risk, reduce your risk. Um, for example, taking oral contraceptives for five years will reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. It has been scientifically Mm -hmm. proven. So that's one thing you might want to consider. Obviously, diet and exercise are linked to any cancer. Mm. So we all have to be aware of that. Having children yeah.
4: reduces your risk of ovarian cancer.
6: Yeah, particularly if you have children before the age of 30. They've also talked about women who've had, who do have the genetic mutation, things like suggesting that you have your ovaries removed as a risk reduction. Mm-hmm. So there are steps you can take to reduce your risk.
5: One of the things I do appreciate about the Lilies of the Valley website is there's a disclaimer that says don't just go randomly Googling stuff about ovarian cancer because there's a lot of bad information and there are resources, links, scientific links on your website. Right. We want to get
4: good information in people's hands, Uh, scientific studies, proven information about signs and symptoms and treatments.
5: And so what can the average woman do, we're taking care of ourselves, what can we say to our doctors to maybe get them on board and get them more aware of the situation?
6: The primary thing I would say is if you have symptoms that that are new for you, that are persistent for you, and you go to your physician and he says, well, it's probably this or it's probably this. Take one of our symptom cards or take the symptoms printed off of our website and say to that doctor, prove to me this is not ovarian cancer. Just put it on his radar Uh because he may not even be thinking those lines. So just give him the suggestion. Prove to me this is not. Most women don't think of it because we're taught not to question physicians. Mm -hmm. But in this case,
4: it's very wise to do that. And women like we said, don't know the symptoms and don't know the risk factors and and things to look for. I was having some symptoms, and when I went for my annual exam, I told the doctor about it, and he dismissed it as age, menopause, those kind of things. Well, that made sense to me because I had no clue what the symptoms were. Mm -hmm. I had no idea of what to be looking for. You know, we all know about breast cancer and the self-exams and the lumps and all of that. So we also need to know the symptoms of the gynecologic cancers and know what to be looking for so we can push when we think that there's something wrong.
5: And you know your body best. Right. right. And you need to know that you know your body best. Right. That's right. And what's that website for more information? Liliesofthevalley.org. There's all sorts of links, and do you have any other sort of resources, Susan, you'd like to recommend?
6: Yes, I'd like to recommend the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, which is on the national level, and it just has a few more resources, and that one is
4: ocrahope.org. That's also linked to <clears throat> on our site. We link to a lot of the, the good national organizations.
5: Mm-hmm. And there is good that can come of it. I'm looking at two ovarian cancer survivors. It's not a death sentence.
4: No. Believe
6: me, you feel that way when you get the diagnosis. I walked into the gynecologic oncologist office and was told you have stage 3C ovarian wow. cancer. And that was 22 years ago. Okay. So there is hope on the horizon. There really is. And with good care, with the proper care, women are surviving.
4: When I was diagnosed nine yeah. years ago, I was also diagnosed at stage 3. There were the survival rate, five-year survival rate then was only 15%. Wow. Um, when I saw that number, that was kind of the end of my research because I didn't want <laughs> to go into treatment with a, a negative mindset. Right, right. And numbers had not changed in like 30 years at that time. No new treatments. No new. No better outcomes. Nothing. Fortunately, just in the nine years since I've been diagnosed, there are some new treatments out there, and the five-year survival rate now is 45 percent. Mm-hmm. A little bit lower than that, but yeah.
6: yeah. But it has improved, at least. And one of the reasons it's improved is because the advocacy community has really spearheaded a drive to get more funding for research. And in fact, today, we have a group of advocates down in Montgomery talking about this commission report with the, with the legislature and trying to get them to support increased funding of the uh, Alabama Breast and Cervical Cancer uh, Early Detection Programme. We have advocates working on the national level to try to get increased funding through the National Cancer Institute, through the Department of Defense Ovarian Cancer Research Program. So anybody who wants to make their voices heard, they don't have to be a survivor. Anybody who's got a loved one, a friend, or is just a woman who wants to see this disease put to an end, contact us and we'll get you
4: involved to raise your voice. (laughs) The Lilies of the Valley also has a Facebook page. And every time there is a need for us to contact our representatives and senators, we we put the information on our Facebook page with a direct link where you can go and send an email to them and say, hey, this funding initiative is coming up. I want you to vote yes for this.
5: So there is stuff we can do. We can, we, you feel powerless when you first get the diagnosis, but you can get the reins in your hand and drive this issue forward. That's yes. exactly
6: right. Any of the gynecologic cancers, we all need champions. And every time I go to Washington and visit our senators, I say to them, it's time for you to stand as a champion for the women of Alabama.
0: That was Jenny Kennedy talking with Regina Parker, Executive Director of Lilies of the Valley, and Susan Layton with the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance. You can hear their discussion again on tonight's Public Radio Hour podcast at WLRH.org Just look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour, and then explore an archive of our past shows. We got some great responses to last week's discussion on the complicated legacy of Werner Von Braun, and we'd love to hear from you too. This show is meant to shine the spotlight on our community and answer the questions that people are asking, and we need your participation to do that. Leave us a message at WLRH.org or on Facebook. And while you're there, I hope you'll support our local journalism efforts with a donation during our Spring Fun Drive. Our programming doesn't happen without your help, so please give us a little
1: push today if you can. I'm Brett Tannehill. We'll see you next week.